Indigenous communities have hunted, fished, and gathered in Alaska for thousands of years. Today, many of the subsistence foods they depend on have become less reliable. The reasons why are layered and complicated, but what are the solutions? A growing number of advocates in and outside Alaska are drawing attention to the importance of indigenous land stewardship in preserving our food systems. We'll discuss sustainable harvesting and the application of indigenous knowledge today on Talk of Alaska. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by ConocoPhillips, investing in oil exploration and production and working to create economic opportunities for Alaskans. ConocoPhillips, unlocking Alaska's energy resources. Alaska's unique approach to mental health funding is improving the lives of Alaskans who experience behavioral health conditions and developmental disabilities. The Alaska Mental Health Trust Authority has a responsibility to generate revenue from its 1 million acres of land and the resources they contain. The trust uses this revenue to help fund statewide programs and initiatives that positively impact trust beneficiaries. To learn more, visit alaskamentalhealthtrust.org. This message sponsored by the Alaska Mental Health Trust. The views expressed on this program are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. You're listening to Talk of Alaska. I'm Adeline Baxter. Anyone who has been to the grocery store lately knows the prices of many staples have gone up in the past year. At the same time, subsistence fishing has been limited in parts of the state due to low salmon returns. For villages along the Yukon River, that meant critical food sources that normally fill their freezers for winter were unavailable this past year. There are similar shortages in southeast, the Kenai, and virtually every other region. Can indigenous practices help preserve fish populations for future generations? My guests today are Louise Brady. She's a founder of the Herring Protectors in Sitka and a member of the Kiksadi. And Dr. Heather Soyach, Jean Gordon, is a research scientist with Child Trends and has a PhD in Indigenous Studies with a concentration in Indigenous Sustainability from the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Thanks, both of you, for being here. Thank you so much for having us. You, thank you. Ganachish. You can also join the conversation. How can indigenous practices better inform our food systems? What are your thoughts on food security in Alaska? You can join by calling 1-800-478-8255 statewide. That's 1-800-478-8255. The local number is 907-550-8422. Or you can email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. I want to take a moment for both of our guests to uh, introduce themselves. So, Louise, why don't you start us off? Uh, please tell our listeners who you are and what a herring protector is. My Shinget name is Kashitla, and I am Kiksadi from Shitka, which is now known as Sitka. And I am the grandchild of the Kaguantan Wolf Clan, also clan house here in Sitka. And we uh, Kiksadi women are known as herring ladies because of an uh, original instruction or what people call uh, stories 
uh, regarding the herring and our responsibilities to the herring of our relatives in the ocean. And herring protectors have been active now since, 19, I mean, since 2016. Uh, I originally got involved with uh, protecting the herring as a um, staff member of the Sika Tribe of Alaska in 1997, though. Mm. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, Dr. Gordon, uh, would you like to take this opportunity to introduce yourself? Akayana, yes. Pagagisia Tiga Heather Soyak Jean Gordon, Inupiak Siniga Soyak. So, hi, my name is Heather Soyak Jean Gordon, and my Inupiak name is Soyak. I was gifted it by my uh, grandmother when her youngest sister passed. It means drum, and I really think of that as continuing the heartbeat of the indigenous uh, drum, making, um, trying to work for advocacy for indigenous rights. I am Inupiaq and I was raised just outside of Homer, Alaska on a reindeer ranch um, with my paternal grandmother, uh, Mary Jean Kuguni-Yeni. I'm an enrolled member of the Nome Eskimo community, which is a federally recognized tribe. And I grew up learning about, you know, the painful history of being indigenous in Alaska, the racism, the boarding schools, the assimilation, the Jim Crow. And this really led to why I studied Indigenous Studies and why I do the work I do. Um, and I'm now, like you said, at Child Trends, uh, doing work around looking at overall health of Indigenous children and families. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Kayana. So, Heather, uh, I wanted to start by talking about your recently published article, Alaska Native Subsistence Rights, Taking an Anti-Racist Decolonizing Approach to Land Management and Ownership for Our Children and Generations to Come. So the article describes your work with the Nanilchik Village Tribe, documenting indigenous storytelling um, in regard to subsistence fishing. So just tell us what you set out to do there. Absolutely. Um, so it was for my dissertation research, and I built a relationship with the Nanilchik village tribe um, to explore how they were using self-determination to achieve sustainability and well-being in their community. Uh, what we ended up finding is, is that um, a lot of the people talked about the lack of indigenous knowledge being included in subsistence management decisions in Alaska and that Alaska Natives who were voicing Indigenous knowledge were feeling that their knowledge wasn't listened to. Um, and this is so important because subsistence is not just a way that we gather food um, for the table. Uh, subsistence is a cultural practice. It's spirituality. It's our relationship with the earth. I mean, it's, it's, it's when we look at Indigenous approaches to subsistence management, we're really wanting to have that relationality and that understanding that we care for the earth just as the earth cares for us. And the study um, really got into this fact that indigenous knowledge is, is not being included and that there's ongoing issues with a lack of recognition of tribal sovereignty uh, by the state of Alaska. And that there's also problems with not having um, indigenous uh, subsistence priorities in the state as well. Mm -hmm. Obviously, um, a lot of the focus there is about the role of indigenous people as stewards of the land and, um, as you said, decolonizing land management. Can you explain what that means to be a steward? 
Absolutely. So when I explain stewardship, it's most helpful if I say I'm doing it in regards to stewardship and land management, that those are two different approaches. So in Indigenous land stewardship, you have Indigenous people who have lived and worked on the land since time immemorial, and they have a relational, we have a relational approach to the land, waters, the plants, the animals, and this approach is one of understanding that they give themselves for us to survive just as we care for them and make sure that their populations um, will live for, for future generations. This is very different than land management practices, which take a, a domineering attitude with the human beings being at the top of the food chain pyramid and the human beings controlling the way that things are. It tends to see land more as an economic resource. Um, and it involves resources extraction, um, large harvesting of animals like commercial uses. And it also involves changing the land in a way that benefits humans at the expense to animal and land populations. So we really have this kind of different way of approaching land when we look at indigenous stewardship practices versus land management practices. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Heather, for starting us off. Louise, I want to turn to you. Uh, the Sacro herring harvest in Sitka took place earlier this spring. Can you describe for us the cultural significance of that time for Clinket people? You know, it's really, uh, it's, it's difficult to put into words because, uh, as Heather was saying, there we have a very different relationship with um, our surroundings than the Western world does. And this can be found in um, our stories, what people call stories. I think that's a really um, uh, one-dimensional way to to talk about our uh, original instruction or our teachings around how we're to live in this world. And I think that makes it possible to, um, you know, have extractive industries that uh, really don't take a look, have nothing to do with stewardship. But, um, and so if for people who live in Southeast or who have been to Southeast and lived through a fall and winter or really anybody in Alaska, the springtime is a very, for me, magical time. Um, and with the research that I've done, it was also a very magical time um, for our ancestors in that Sitka Sound, what's now called Sitka Sound, Chitka, uh, there are accounts that go back even further than the Russian era, but there's Russian accounts of how thousands of people came to Sitka in the springtime because the herring were so plentiful here. And we go from darkness, we go from rain and clouds to I would say one of the most spectacular places in the world. Um, for instance, this spring, there have been literally hundreds of gray whales and humpback whales. And uh, the difference between, you know, being inside, I can see my ancestors would be, you know, inside and working on getting ready for the next harvesting season or, you know, making gifts for relatives for our ceremonies. But when the spring comes, everybody starts coming out. And the word still today is like, so has anybody 
seen any herring. Has anybody gotten any herring except like the buzz from the time that sun comes out and the eagles start coming back um, in larger numbers in January and we start getting calls from relatives and friends all over, not just Southeast Alaska, but all over Alaska and even all over the country saying, oh, do you have any herring eggs? And it's something specific to uh, to Southeast Alaska and to Sitka. Uh, and there is just something about, you know, when the herring eggs, first herring eggs come in, and what the way that it's gathered here in Sitka, most of the people take hemlock branches, small hemlock trees, and lay them in the uh, water along the shoreline. It's a lot of work, but it's worth every bit of work. And <clears throat> they wait for the herring to come and spawn. And then once the herring have spawned, you go and you pull the trees and you bring them in. And some of my fondest memories are sitting at my mother's dining room table with my sisters, with my um, family, and eating herring eggs fresh off the branches. We didn't even cook them. And we would do that for days, just days on end getting the herring, um, the herring eggs ready for um, shipping for anywhere from Barrow to Washington, where my aunt lives. And then it's really, uh, as my friend Vivian Mark says in the film that we did called Ya'at Lunet, it's like it, when you receive a gift of herring eggs, you know that you are loved. And so it's, and I think it's really something that so many people don't really get to experience, number one, uh, to experience Sitka in the spring, <laughs> and then to harvest your own food and to have that connection with a place and with everything in that place. And again, as I, I got to read Heather's paper last night, and it it is true. It's like... Uh, we don't have that monetary relationship with the herring. It's more like, I would say, a personal relationship of love and gratitude. Hmm. Thank you for that explanation. And um, certainly anyone who has ever been to Sitka knows how gorgeous it is. And I can only imagine what it's like in the spring when the herring are running. Um, if you're just joining us, uh, this is Talk of Alaska. I'm Adeline Baxter. My guests today are Dr. Heather Soyak. Jean Gordon, and uh, Louise Brady from Sitka. And we are discussing uh, subsistence sustainability and the ways that indigenous knowledge can be applied to help uh, preserve, uh, in this context, we're talking about salmon and herring, but other wildlife populations for uh, sustainable food sources into the future. Um, and thank you, Louise, for, uh, for those who are unfamiliar for giving them uh, such a beautiful picture of what herring harvests are like, and, and I know certainly as someone who's lived in Juneau and Anchorage that I, I know many people who eagerly await their uh, herring egg par parcels in every spring that are sent by family members, and it is, you're right, such an act of love and such an anticipated delicacy. Um, so I wanted to ask you, Louise, 
you sort of touched on this, but how has that harvest changed over time in your lifetime, um, just in terms of the plentifulness of the herring eggs and uh, the ways in which you're able to collect them? Okay, so I'm I'm 65, and in my my brother and some of my friends um, talk about uh, when they were growing up. So this would have been, I don't know maybe in the 60s, and my one friend uh, Ed Young. So if you've been to Sitka, our clan houses were on the beach in the channel, and Ed said in the summertime they would all wait for you know the herring to come in. And in order to get herring, they didn't even have to go fishing. He said that he remembers going down to the channel at low tide, and he would take a bucket, and he would look at the tide pools, and they would be full of herring, and he would take the bucket and scoop it up and have a bucket full of herring and large herring. And he also said that he knew that, you know, all of the elders, uh, women along what we call Backstreet would know the herring were in two, and they would watch for the young people to come with buckets full of herring to give to the elders. And it's the same thing with my brother. Uh, we lived on uh, the island, what we call the island, which uh, is over the bridge. And he remembers my mother asking him to go get some herring on the footbridge. And he told her, well, I don't have, I don't have a... Uh, fishing pole. She's like, you don't need one. Just take a bucket and lower it into the water and get some herring. And I don't know when the last time uh, that people were able to do that. And there was never a question. There was never a question for many years as to whether or not people were going to get herring eggs. When they went out to get herring eggs, they got herring eggs. Many of my friends who have been harvesting for years said that you know, um, the spawn, the herring spawn lasted longer. Um, there were places like uh, what's called Middle Island right now where, you know, people didn't have to go very far to harvest herring eggs. And I think it was in probably 19, I mean, 2015, 2014, um, I asked some friends about getting some herring eggs. And it's like, you know, I don't have any uh, because... You know, we're having to chase the herring all over the sound. And, you know, we are told that, um, you know, some of the industry, they're like, oh, well, you know, you guys are just uh, setting your branches in the wrong place. So why don't you go out to um, cruise off island? And the thing is that most of the people who harvest are in small skiffs. And it just becomes a real um you know, it takes a lot of money to fill up a gas tank. Mm. And so around 2015, I talked to several folks, and they were like, yeah, you know, Louise, we have to chase the herring all over the sound. We go out to, you know, we go out to, um, you know, south of the south of the Sitka, and we'll see some spawning. We set some branches, and we go back the next day, and they're gone. And they are spawning in a different way, they are spawning in different places, and they're spawning for shorter periods of time. And to make that clear, there's this um, management, I think, that Heather um, mentioned in her paper that uh, they're supposed to manage for uh, quality and quantity. I think it was with, I think, for salmon, but here, 
uh, the Alaska Department of Fish and Game is supposed to manage for subsistence priorities so that the quality and quantity of eggs is taken into account during um, the fishery. And so when I first started talking to my friends and hearing about this issue, um, seven out of ten years, the harvesters were not able to get the amount necessary for subsistence, which meant that people were able to get herring eggs, but it was just, you know, like for immediate family and friends. Mm-hmm. Well, we should mention, you know, obviously Sitka is famous for its herring runs and continues to see herring every spring to potentially, you know, to varying degrees, but there were before this, there were there were herring subsistence fisheries all over southeast Alaska, and many of those places just do not see herring anymore, or at least in very small amounts. So, Heather, um, I know in your conversations with the Nanilchik Village Tribe, um, people mentioned the razor clam population locally and the collapse that was seen there. Can you tell us what happened uh, there in Nanilchik? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Nanilchik, the beach right outside Nanilchik, I mean, right on the water where Nanilchik is located, um, has been uh, a fantastic beach for razor clam digging since I was a child and farther back, you know, way farther back than that. I'm from Homer, Alaska, which is um, 45 minutes away from Nanilchik, and um, we were involved in clamming there. Uh, But what I want to emphasize is not only were indigenous people clamming at Nanilchik, but the state does not have uh, a subsistence priority for native people. So in regards to that beach, there wasn't even subsistence priority for rural people. So the Nanilchik stretch of beach, you know, being maybe a mile or two that it was, was being harvested by people from Anchorage, Kenai, Um, And up to, you know, 600,000 people were coming to this beach to harvest the clam population. And, you know, over time, the clams became smaller and smaller. And the Nanelchik Village tribe was reaching out as they, you know, as best they could to share their knowledge. You know, the reason Indigenous knowledge is just so valuable is that it's, it's not temporal, it's not based on a small period of viewing, you know, there's the daily observation. So there's this great um, years and history accumulation of knowledge. And it's also not specific to one place, you know, when a scientist comes in and studies, they're often there for a short period of time at a specific place. But, you know, the population from Nanilchik, the indigenous people there had been all over that beach and had been there for um, generations. And they told the state, you know, the the size of the clams is they're getting smaller, they're getting smaller. And there was no restriction. There was no um, bringing it down just to rural users. There was no bringing it down just to indigenous users. It remained, um, you know, fully able to be used by residents from Anchorage and all around. And when the clams were no longer a, a good size, razor clam is about a good solid six plus inches long. And when the clams were two and a half to three inches long, that was the biggest they got, um, then the beach was shut down. And that was in 2014 that the beach was um, closed to clamming and it has remained closed since 2014. The clam population still has not recovered. 
Um, this was really harmful for the Ninilchik village tribe and, you know, their culture and relationship they had around clamming and the dishes they shared and the, um, you know, being able to go outside their homes and have that be a way to get food for their families, you know, without having to go to the store. Um, and now the only, the only beach at, available for them to clam at now is, you know, like Louise was saying, the difficulty is way, it's across the bay. Um, you know, there's still a beach over there available for clamming, but, you know, it's, it's difficult for people to get there. You have to have a boat and it's, it's not the way things were done um, for generations. So it's been a huge loss for the community and it's something that they they're really starting to fear for other animal populations, specifically the king salmon population as well. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I know that you uh, talked, uh, we talked beforehand about the concerns in the tribe for, you know, uh, other uh, native populations of salmon, sockeye. Um, but what has sort of been the relationship in terms of uh, the tribe's, you know, ability to weigh in on matters of land management uh, with as you talked about, there are so many different levels to it. Yeah, so after the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act was passed in 1971, it removed all subsistence rights for indigenous people in Alaska. And so they then passed um, ANILCA in um, 1981, I'm, unless it's ANILCA was Alaska Native Interest Lands Conservation Act in 1980, and this restored was was passed to restore subsistence rights. But there was a big pressure by um, non-native populations to not have it be specific to natives. So the pop, so what came out is that it would be a rural preference um, instead of an indigenous preference, and so there. This um, this rural preference was challenged by the state of Alaska and the state of Alaska Supreme Court decided that having a rural preference was unconstitutional in regards to the state of Alaska constitution. It was unconstitutional for urban residents, um, which is like I just said, how the state of Alaska does not regulate between urban and rural residents when they were clamming on the Ninilchik beaches. So what you have now is when the state was no longer going to comply with ANILCA, the federal government stepped in. And as of 1990, the state of Alaska has had a dual management system where the federal government manages federal lands and waters, um, which is about 60% of the state of Alaska. And the state Alaska Department of Fish and Game, like Louise was saying, manages uh, the state lands and waters, which is about 30% of the state of Alaska. Um, and where we start to see problems specifically um, with the Yukon River and the Kenai River in regards to the Ninilchik village tribe is that the state manages the waters at the mouth of the river, which is where commercial and sports fishermen fish. And then the federal government manages far up the river where the subsistence people are wanting to fish. And so there's a difficulty in getting the reduction in the amount the commercial and sport are taking so that there is enough to take for the indigenous people farther up the river. And I want to emphasize that this is not a huge take that they're asking for. At the end of the year, when you look at the fish populations being taken, commercial and sport take 98% of the salmon in Alaska and subsistence fishermen take 2%. So this is a very small percentage, not making a huge economic impact on commercial or 
denying sports fishermen the ability to fish. It's just that people are asking for the right to carry on their families, their traditions and their cultures and have access to food that without, they really do have food security challenges like you were saying happened in the Yukon last year. Mm-hmm. Louise, uh, can you tell us when we're talking about, you know, these sustainable practices and the indigenous knowledge that's been passed down from generation to generation, what does that look like for herring harvesting? Okay, so, uh, well, there, first of all, no no herring are, are killed during the harvest. It's, we take the eggs, and um, <clears throat> as opposed to the sacro herring fishery, which uh, takes uh, seiners go out and get a net full of herring, and then uh, the and what they're after is the sacro, which is a delicacy of Japan. And uh, <clears throat> so they take male and female, and after um, they process for the eggs, the herring itself is ground up for fish meal for um, farm to feed farm salmon, and she uses pet food uh, and versus taking the eggs, laying branches, and... Um, some people just, you know, make comments that, well, okay, so all of the branches weren't pulled. Well, you know, that's okay because they're um, trees that actually um, are left in and uh, provide more places, more ways for the herring to come back and lay eggs the following year. Um and, you know, we've been doing this for thousands of years, and we have never seen um, a shortage of herring. And the sacro fishery, um, if you see the, our film, Ya'adwini, there's one section that is um, called the, the problem, the threat to, to the herring, is that there are, I believe, 10 or 11 fisheries that have, Sacro uh, herring fisheries that have crashed in the last 40 years. One of them is Ock Bay, and you know it, it hasn't come back. You know they're just now starting to see herring, and the last fishery was, I believe, in 1980. And so, for uh, the the way that we harvest, there are a number of things that you know our people are taught when they go out to harvest. You know, there's a it's, of course, it's like an art. You have to know what kind of hemlock trees to harvest. You have to know where to set the branches. You have to, um, you know, because, again, when the uh, industry says, well, you can go out to cruise off, but, you know, if you go out to cruise off, which is just off the Pacific Ocean and it's sandy, when you pull your uh, branches, they could be full of, of sand. But, you know, anyway, in the end, it's like we have been harvesting herring eggs in, in Sitka this way for thousands of years, and we have never had a shortage of herring or herring eggs previously. Mm-hmm. And because it is done, you know, again, going back to that relationship, and that is also shown in our, um, we just created what we call New U, and it's a way of honoring our relationship to the environment. If you go online to... Um, you know, herringprotectors.com or uh, our Facebook page, Herring Protectors, you can see the robes that were created. 
and <clears throat> brought out this year and last year. And there's five robes, and if you look, the herrings swim across those five robes in uh, the shape of a DNA strand. And that's what it is for us. It's like if we lose the ability to harvest our traditional foods, it's in our DNA, and that is ultimately harmful. And I think that's what... um, you know, I think it's the biggest struggle to explain to people mm-hmm. uh, is that our relationship is different. It's one of love. It's one of reference. Um, and it's one of valuing our foods and our place in such a different way, completely different than money. Mm-hmm. Well, we need to take a quick break. Uh, When we come back, we'll hear more about sustainable practices in subsistence harvesting from Louise Brady, founder of the Herring Protectors in Sitka, and Dr. Heather Sayak Jean Gordon, a researcher with Child Trends who uh, recently worked with the Nanilchik Village Tribe. Do you have questions or ideas about resource management in your area? Call us and share your thoughts. The statewide number is 1-800-478-8255. That's 1-800-478-8255. 478-8255. In Anchorage, the local number is 907-550-8422. And you can email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. NEA Alaska is a professional education association representing over 11,000 of Alaska's dedicated public school employees. NEA Alaska members are united in their commitment to provide an excellent education for every student, regardless of background or zip code. Together, NEA Alaska members work with colleagues, parents, and their communities to build strong public schools that are productive, safe, and welcoming to all. Learn more at NEAalaska.org and help NEA Alaska reach, teach, and inspire all Alaska students. This message sponsored by NEA Alaska. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. I'm Adeline Baxter. Today we're discussing sustainable subsistence, and my guests are Dr. Heather Sayak, Jean Gordon, and Louise Brady, both uh, experts in subsistence in uh, various parts of the state. So um, I want to spend some time in this section of the program talking about the relationship between indigenous knowledge and, um, you know, the sort of established scientific method that um, really sort of determines a lot of uh, land management and uh, how we manage our food populations, our fish populations in the state. Um, uh, Heather, so in the book, a, a lot of what I was thinking about when I was reading your article in the book Braiding Sweetgrass by botanist Robin Wall Kimmerer, she writes about incorporating indigenous ways of knowing into Western science and describes the resistance to that that she experienced. So, Heather, do you think that there is a path for indigenous knowledge to blend with the classic, you know, established research um, in a productive way that, you know, allows us to uh, sort of blend both ways of thinking? Yes, absolutely. Um, So 
oftentimes you see that indigenous knowledge and Western science end up being treated as like a dichotomy, like as if they're um, looking even at completely separate things. And I would say that they possibly are approaching things from different worldviews. Yes, 100%. And that's, you know, what we've kind of discussed in regards to land management versus land stewardship. But indigenous knowledge is really something that can help Western science improve their management practices. Because like I said before, it brings this, instead of having a specific time period over which you're doing a species count, it brings a year round count of that species because the indigenous people are monitoring their lands and populations um, all the time. It also brings massive spatial um, broadening to what would normally be a Western scientific study where an animal count or a fish count might be done in one specific area. Again, which is missing, you know, these, these large tracts of land, especially looking at Alaska, that indigenous people travel on, um, moving between um, visiting people and uh, moving to go out on the land to hunt and fish and gather. Um, so really, uh, the the argument, uh, it's very difficult for me to see a good, strong argument against including indigenous knowledge in management and and accepting it within Western science. We even see the federal government, um, November 15th, 2021, the White House released a memorandum on including indigenous traditional ecological knowledge. So this is specifically talking about indigenous knowledge in regards to the ecology and the land, kind of like what we're talking about today. And the, the White House, you know, that they want indigenous ecological knowledge to be included in federal decision-making. Um, and shortly after that, in March of this year, the director of the National Park Service said that they are committed to increasing the role of tribal nations in the management of public land. So I think that the federal government is starting to try to go in the right direction. I mean, I, I would agree that they have a, a painful history of not doing the right direction, but I feel you know, within the last two years, some of the executive orders that have come out, and especially this memorandum, that there is work to recognize the value of indigenous knowledge um, on the federal side. I think, um, I really hope that the state of Alaska and the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, which again, you know, I said there's that split management system in Alaska, I really hope that they can see the value of this and learn from um, the, this newer federal approach to the inclusion of indigenous knowledge. Mm -hmm. Well, I wanted to uh, quickly bring in an email that we just received from Kay McCarthy in Juneau. She says, Gunachish, I'm so happy you're doing this program. And uh, she's grateful that we're raising the issue of relationship as a major idea that permeates indigenous knowledge about fisheries. And she says she's 83 and has fond memories of the herring spawning in Ock Bay in Juneau and putting out spruce branches with her preschool class to collect the fish and take them back to school and eat them. And now she says the herring spawn is very rare in Ock Bay. Um, so thank you for that email, Kay. Um, and I want to also bring in, we have a caller, uh, Dr. Thomas Thornton has joined us, which I'm so glad that he was able to call into the program today. Uh, Dr. Thornton is the director of the Alaska Coastal Rainforest Center and a professor at UAS and has done research uh, on herring specifically and the relationship between indigenous societies and herring and knows uh, Louise. So uh, Dr. Thornton, thank you for being here. 
Oh, I think we might have lost Dr. Thornton. All right, well, we'll come back to Dr. Thornton, but in the meantime, um, I I guess, Louise, I, I think one thing that I want to talk about is um, the fact that herring are not just, you know, something that humans rely on, but are very important in the food system overall, and the same is true of salmon, of course, and so many other species. So, Louise, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what sort of role herring play beyond their, you know, spiritual and cultural role for humans? So I think the best way that um, I think to look at it is last year um, <clears throat> when the herring were spawning. Um, so I, I told you that. So in the in the fall time here, it's pretty quiet. You know, there's not a lot of people coming out, and um, you know, even the waters are quiet. And last year. During the spawn, I took a walk out to Totem Park, right? And if you've never been to Sitka, it's on <clears throat> the Pacific Ocean. And then, you know, we're surrounded on three sides um, by mountains. And then uh, or Manishkan is um, the volcano is out to the west also. And so out at the park, there's these amazing tide fl- tidal flats that, that go up, I don't know, maybe a quarter of a mile. And I was walking with my friend Peter there, and it, I just, uh, there's nothing like it. Uh, everyone was there. And by everyone, I mean there were eagles, there were seagulls, there were all the different species of ducks. There were blue heron, there were um, sea, sea lions, there were whales. It all just there, um, and I liken it to like a, it was a cacophony of joy, and I think that really speaks to how important the herring are because everybody shows up, everybody shows up, and I believe that's why you know for thousands of years that's why people have come here to enjoy the herring eggs because the the bounty of this place is in direct relation to the herring. And, you know, I don't think that I can explain it really um, any better than that. You know, the the salmon fishing is great here. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so what's at risk uh, if we lose this? What's at risk if we lose this, like all of the other places have, uh, so many other places have? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I think we have Dr. Thornton back with us. Um, Again, he's a professor at UAS and director of the Alaska Coastal Rainforest Center. Dr. Thornton, are you there? Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I don't know if you were able to hear that, but we were just speaking with Louise about uh, the way that herring support other species besides just humans. And I was wondering if you could kind of illustrate that for us. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, herring or what? what you call a foundation species, right? Meaning they're foundational to the marine ecosystem, to the food web. And uh, their interactions go all the way up the food chain, right? From creatures just a little bit bigger than they are, um, you know, other fish like like salmon and cod, uh, all the way up to seabirds and the, and the great big mammals, uh, seals, sea lions, and, and uh, whales. Uh, and then, of course, humans, 
And so in that sense, they're, they're foundational. But um, in the book I wrote with Madonna Moss on, on herring and people in the North Pacific, we also made the point that there are cultural keystone species, which I think, um, you know, it got cut off. I'm sure Louise made very, very well, uh, as I've heard her do before, about how how important they are within the culture and, you know, knitting together uh, the seasons and people's connections to to land and sea, particularly because the herring spawn um, in springtime and they're sort of the first signs of, of new life um, after after winter, um, so uh, it, you know one of the one of the miracles to a social scientist like me is that so much effort is put into the harvest. Um, you literally put down branches that cultivate the herring to come, invite them to come in, uh, and provide that habitat, that substrate for them to lay their eggs on, and then you collect that very carefully uh, for quality, leaving. Uh, eggs that maybe are not quality for eating, leaving them in the water so that they can spawn out, and then uh, taking that harvest and distributing it. And amazingly, um, on average, 87% of that harvest is distributed um, beyond the individual or the, or the household um, to other other people. So it's, uh, uh, you know, that's an amazing fact. Uh, and why is that done? Why does it reach... 40 to 50 communities around Alaska. Um, and I think that's part of a, of a culture of, of reciprocity and uh, sharing and gifting and exchange that's, that's really foundational to Alaska's economy. So um, while the commercial fishery is really going for maximum sustained yield for export commodification of, of those herring eggs, mainly to Asian markets, the Alaskan uh, subsistence fishery, which doesn't have to kill the fish in order to get the eggs, is really concentrated on what I would call maximum uh, social benefits uh, to uh, uh, not just Alaskan Native communities and not just communities in southeast Alaska, but communities all over the state and beyond. Mm-hmm. Well, we need to take another break, but very briefly, I just wanted to ask you, I mean, in these other parts of Southeast that had reliable herring spawning for many, many years, now those spawns are either non-existent or very rare. What is, is it known how likely it is for herring to be able to rebound in those places? Uh, No, it's not known. And, uh, you know, the record is not good on commercial fishing and sustainment. Uh, we have so many areas that have been closed. Uh, I, I did hear the, the the writer who was talking about Auk Bay, and you know I lived in Juneau, and it's uh, it's sad that there really isn't any significant herring spawn, certainly not enough to to harvest um, since the, the early 1980s, and it was basically overfished. That's not really a contested uh, conclusion. Um, and the fact is, it takes a long time, right? We're, we're here we are uh, 40 years later, and we still haven't seen a, a significant return of herring spawn in Auk Bay, and maybe we never will. So um, uh, the risks are very, very high in overfishing. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, one of the concerns is we've lost all of these areas where herring used to spawn and where communities relied on them, and now we're kind of down to Sitka Sound and maybe Craig Kowak area. Uh, to produce herring, and 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 all of that's done in the commercial environment, particularly in Sitka Sound, where they're doing the Satco fishery, mm-hmm. where if they overfish, um, you know, 
where do you go next, right? There's no other, there's no other mecca, there's no other cent- epicenter for for herring spawning to really go to, at least not in southeast Alaska, but not really elsewhere in the state either. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Dr. Thornton. We need to make to take another quick break. Uh, when we return, we'll hear more from Louise Brady and Dr. Heather Sayak Jean Gordon about sustainable subsistence. Do you have any insight to add to our discussion? Call us and share your thoughts. The statewide number is 1-800-478-8255. In Anchorage, the local number is 907-550-8422. And you can email talk at alaskapublic.org. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. People who smoke or have smoking-related conditions like lung and heart disease are more likely to get seriously ill from COVID-19. Not using any tobacco or e-cigarette products is one of the best ways to keep your immune system strong, ready to fight all kinds of viruses. If you decide to quit, help is available. Call Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line at 1-800-QUIT-NOW or text READY to 200-400 to get the support you need to quit for good. This message sponsored by Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line. If you're hurting in your relationship or have been affected by sexual violence, Strong Hearts Native Helpline is a free 24-7 confidential and anonymous domestic, dating, and sexual violence helpline for Alaska Natives. Help is available by calling or texting 1-844-7-NATIVE or using the chat icon at strongheartshelpline.org. This message is sponsored by the Strong Hearts Native Helpline. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. I'm Adeline Baxter. We are discussing sustainable subsistence. And my guests today are Dr. Heather Sayek Jean Gordon and Louise Brady, a herring protector from Sitka. We also just uh, heard from Dr. Thomas Thornton from UAS. I'm grateful to him for calling in to join us briefly. And I want to go to another caller. Uh, We have Lynette calling from Anchorage. Hi, Lynette. You're on Talk of Alaska. Hello. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. My name is Lynette Marino Hins, and I am half Clinket. I'm also quarter Japanese, so I know a little bit about this topic. Um, thank you, Louise Brady, for uh, coming in and, and sharing your knowledge. Um, and I sit on the Anchorage Fish and Game Advisory Committee Board. Um, we had a meeting here for the State Fisheries Board at the Egan Center in March. I went down to testify um, in support of our salmon row and our, I'm sorry, our herring row and um, to protect it because it's true. We get less than 2% from the state. I would like to see that change. I would like to see us get 20% of our subsistence, not 2% or less. This is a crying shame across our state, and it's not just southeast, but everywhere. I am a, in June, it will be 40 years I've been a cab driver in Anchorage, Alaska, and I've talked to people from all over the state, and the people from the Yukon River, they told me that they were not getting fish. This was very alarming to me, and the governor did not declare a state of emergency until late. He didn't get on it right away. Also, other villages distributed fish along the Yukon so that the people would have some kind of fish. Not a lot, but something. And the Sitka commercial um, herring fleet, they wanted um, two to three times more than what they got last year. This is what I was told. That was also alarming. 
Um, I know I'm part Japanese, and my brother, um, he teaches karate. And he said that the old Japanese, that they want the herring on kelp, the eggs, and and that the new ones, the the children, the younger generations, they buy it for them, but then the older parents are are, you know, are dying, and the new Japanese people are not so used to eating that, and so they put it in their freezers, and so I know that that demand for Japan is not as great as it used to be. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Lynette, thank you so much for calling in and, and sharing, uh, you know, a good sample of sort of the frustrations that are happening around the state. Uh, appreciate your call. Um, uh, I wanted to get into the topic uh, with Dr. Gordon of land back. It's something that you uh, mentioned in your article, and it's something that, you know, some of our viewers might be hearing more about. It's uh, You see it on T-shirts, you see it on social media. What is the concept of land back and how does it relate to stewardship? Absolutely. So the land back movement is actually looking at the returning of indigenous lands to indigenous people. Um, I want to emphasize that this, again, is a relational understanding for indigenous people. So we're not just looking at the actual, you know, we're not looking at land as solely acres. The land is something that our language is based in, our subsistence lifestyle is based in, it supports where we live. So this land back movement is so much more to us than just raw acreage. It is it is part of our lives and part of our lifestyle. So the land back movement is this is a movement to um, decolonize and in a very literal sense instead of a metaphorical sense and actually return land uh, to the indigenous peoples that lived on it prior to colonization. Um, and I'll give some examples to kind of help um, help people understand what it, what that looks like. Um, so, for example, the Penobscot Nation in Maine was given back 735 acres of land um, in the last few years that contained a river ecosystem that's critical to Atlantic salmon. So this was land that they had traditionally lived on for millennia. And um, it allows them to uh, regulate and steward um, that, that ecosystem to support Atlantic salmon. Another land back movement happened just last year in California, over 500 acres of redwood forest land were returned to an intertribal council in California, which is composed of 10 federally recognized tribes um, to again return that land for indigenous stewardship. A very large example of where land has not been returned has been the movement for the Black Hills in South Dakota. That has been going on um, since the time of treaties when the Black Hills were supposed to be kept with the indigenous people of the area. However, upon finding gold in the area, the federal government went back on the treaty and uh, kept the Black Hills and ended up you know, putting up the carvings of the four faces up on the Black Hills, which is absolute sacred land to the indigenous people of that area. Um, the government offered them money for that land and that money has since accrued interest over many, many years. However, still um, the people, the land is sacred to the people and that is paramount over these monetary compensations, which permanently would then take it away. So I just want to emphasize that land to us is so much more than just space. 
um, or ownership, but it is it is the grounding relationality of how we live. It's how our future generations live, and it's how we're able to teach our lives to our children. Mm-hmm. And are you aware? I know a lot of uh, the land back movement has sort of revolved around uh, national parks and preserves. Are you aware of any kind of discussions about that here in Alaska? Um, Not specifically to Alaska, but I know that there have been, um, there was a very recent article, I think it wasn't in the Atlantic, on the land back movement in regards to national parks. Um, There also was a book, I think Mark Spence was the author, on the land back movement in regards to national parks. And these efforts, like the Penobscot and the California example, are places of land that people have not settled their houses on. You know, it's still that... um, still unsettled land. Mm-hmm. So it is land that is, I would say, possibly um, not as difficult to give back as land where, you know, towns and cities uh, now exist upon. Um, and, you know, many of the national parks in the U.S., uh, the reason they were made national parks was their beauty. And um, most of these places are uh, spiritual places for the indigenous people of the area. That's, that's you know, they kept them in these pristine conditions and, and they went there to pray mm-hmm. and to, um, you know, to relate with the environment and their world. And um, so I just want to, you know, call that to attention that the national parks weren't just barren places, you know, that indigenous people weren't. It's, it's where they were. Um, and it's those are some of the lands that have been in discussion um, by scholars and indigenous activists about uh, giving that land back. Mm-hmm. Well, I am so sorry we are out of time. There's so much more that we could have discussed today. Uh, I want to say thank you to my guests, Dr. Heather Sayuk Jean Gordon and Louise Brady. And uh, thank you to uh, Dr. Thomas Thornton for also calling in. Uh, this. Uh, Um, We also want to thank Tobin Shelby, our audio producer, and uh, help on the phones from Annie Fight and Wesley Early. I'm Adeline Baxter. That's it for today's Talk of Alaska. You can find Heather's study linked on our website, alaskapublic.org, on the Talk of Alaska page. Thanks for listening. Talk of Alaska is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Today's program is available online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media. Alaska Public Media.